Abraham Lincoln once said, the people are, are wise in the end. You provide them with the right information, they'll make the right decisions. But he also said that they're accustomed to walking with their buttocks too close to the fire, and they have to get used to walking with blisters. Tuesday podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Perry. This is episode one, Walking with Blisters, released on the week of September 10th, 2018. There will be a provincial election in less than two weeks here in New Brunswick, and we're in a swirl of election promises and platform announcements. I wanted to release this episode before election day because my guest has a lot to say about the state of our provincial government's finances. If you've been paying attention to the news in the last couple of weeks, you may have heard the opinions of my guest. This episode is a recording of a conversation I had with Moncton economist and author Richard Sayon. Richard is a former vice president at the University of Moncton and a former director of the Donald J. Savoy Institute, which is a New Brunswick think tank for public policy and regional development. Before that, he spent 15 years working for various federal government departments, including as a director for Industry Canada. Richard has written several books, but the two you'll hear mentioned here in this episode are his 2014 book titled Over the Cliff, Acting Now to Avoid New Brunswick's Bankruptcy, and his latest book is from 2015 called A Tale of Two Countries. In Over the Cliff, which was released before the last provincial election in 2014, Richard makes the case that the provincial government in New Brunswick has to act in a serious and immediate way to avoid putting public finances in a precarious position so that we end up burdening our future generations with an unmanageable debt. In his more recent work, A Tale of Two Countries, he makes the case that because the Maritime provinces have older, slower-going populations and economies that are a lot less dynamic than the rest of the country, we're in a really bad position to continue providing government services in the way we've come to expect in the last 50 years. According to Richard, our government spending habits are unsustainable, especially in the face of what he terms the great demographic imbalance. That's the term he's coined to describe the fact that our population in the Maritimes is aging faster than the rest of Canada and a larger segment of our population is either retired or pretty late in their working lives. This problem is especially acute in New Brunswick, and according to StatsCan, by 2030 we can expect to see one-third of our population age 65 or older. So as I mentioned back in episode zero, this is really meant to be more of a conversation than an interview, and for that reason I've kind of kept the question and answer style to a minimum. I've let Richard expand on points where he had a lot to say, mostly because I'm interested in, in his viewpoint. Some might find his books paint a dire picture of uh, one possible future for our government finances. You'll, you'll hear that he's not a pessimist. And although he's a sharp critic of government mismanagement and wishful thinking, he's far from partisan. He was very gracious with his time, and in fact, he gave me a couple of signed copies of his last few books, including one that was a limited-run hardcover. Now, a couple of notes about the audio in the podcast. First of all, the location of our conversation was far from ideal. We actually met and recorded on the outside patio of a Moncton coffee shop. And at the first of the conversation, you'll notice there's some piped-in music from the shop and a couple of conversations in the background. Then as time went on and we got closer to the noon hour, well, it just got more and more noisy. And toward the end, you'll hear an airplane, some motorbikes, a lawnmower, and uh, at the last end, a cement truck whose driver kindly parked about 20 yards away and left the motor running. So I've done my best with my limited skills to clean up the recording, but you're still going to notice a good deal of background noise, and for that I apologize. 
it made for some rough editing. I hope you find the conversation engaging enough, though, that you can overlook some of the noise. The music you hear at the beginning of the program is from a Fredericton-based band called The Art of the Possible, and the song you hear is called Dark of Day. In addition to being the intro music for the podcast, it's also the song featured in the musical interlude for this episode. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you that two of the band members are my cousins, and I'm actually hoping to feature the band in a future episode. I'd like to thank the band, and in particular uh, lead singer Colin Fowley, for providing the audio. Colin also provides the music you'll hear at the end of the podcast, which is taken from his song, Outside of Town. I'll put all of the band's usual contact info and links in the show notes. So, without further ado, I give you my conversation with Richard Sayon. It's my great pleasure to welcome Richard Sayon to the Y2Stay podcast. Richard is an economist and author, and uh, most recently, A Tale of Two Countries, which I, I hope we'll uh, talk a little more about now, and also Over the Cliff, a uh, book from 2014. Yeah. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. So, anyway, you were saying uh, you were saying before we began recording that uh, you don't consider yourself a cynic. It's not a personality trait of mine, and I've never been a cynical in that sense. Even now, on the, on on the fiscal situation, you know, a lot of people sometimes not all people. I don't get a lot of people talking to me about that, but those who do will say, "Well, you must be, you know, feel vindicated." I mean, the stuff is pretty much panning out as you said it would. Said, so, "Nah." I, Honestly, I I don't want to be the one who writes the book, you know, told you so. You know, this, there's no pleasure in that. You know, there's no fun in that. You write stuff because you feel that you need good information. People will. There is such a thing as collective wisdom. Wisdom. They will eventually make the decision to make it late in the cycle, but they will. You know, uh, climate change is is testing. That theory, we'll see, but Absolutely. you know, I truly believe that in the end, some decisions will be made, but you have to start a conversation somewhere. How about a pessimist? No, I, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist either, but I do acknowledge that uh, some people might view me as a glass half empty type of guy rather than glass half full. But you know, uh, on that count, I, I tend to think that um, to have vision without. Uh, without being grounded in facts is to have hallucinations. So to me, if you can't um, look at reality the way it presents itself, you know, I always tell people, if you want uh, me to be more optimistic, give me different facts, okay? Because the facts should be the one that guide your analysis and your conclusions, not your preference for hope or optimism or your preference for gloom and doom. Sure. You know, and um, I started out writing that book uh, over the cliff uh, in 2013, and I was talking with a, a lot of folks who were telling me that the books were bad. You know, the fiscal situation in New Brunswick was bad. The economy wasn't performing very well. But I kept on telling people, I said, why are you worried about your Brunswick's fiscal situation? And every time I asked people, I got different answers. Really? Yeah. Some people would say, well, you know, debt is, is going up. That's not good. And I would say, well, why is it not good? You know, like, uh, don't you, we all know that, you know, as long as your debt is progressing in line with your GDP, that your ability to shoulder the burden of the debt is not 
considerably altered. Others would say, well, all those interest payments, you know, if interest rates go up, will uh, not uh, all our money go to uh, debt repayment? And I was thinking, no, not really. That's not true, although we think that because our debt is spread over long periods. You know, it's only right. the bonds that come to maturity and the new debt that will be affected by that, and that's relatively marginal. Mm-hmm. Plus, interest rates are not going anywhere, at least back then. You know, we knew that we were coming back from the Great Recession. So I was thinking, okay, so that's the reason for them. And then for other people, it was, well, all this waste and all this money, can, can we really afford all 22 hospitals and all that? So everyone had different answers, but very few people uh, talked about demographics. And I was, at the time, as I was, uh, before I, I went to the Institute, I was VP of, of, of uh, Finance and Administration and HR at the University of Moncton. And I, w- I got interested in university enrollments and declines in university enrollment. And that's where I looked at New Brunswick's demographic. I started getting you know, struck by how serious the situation was. So uh, I told myself, well, I need to dig out this demographic thing to try to understand what's going on with New Brunswick's economy. And as I did that, I started realizing that uh, the situation, as you said, you know, you called me a pessimist. The, situ- the first time I, I, I looked at the model and said, what does the demographic inform us in terms of our growth trajectory? And by the way, what I have in that book, it's exactly what happened since 2008. We grew by about 0.6%, and that's pretty much what the book was saying. And, but you mentioned earlier uh, you don't feel vindicated. Certainly you have a right to. Uh... No, I don't. I certainly don't feel vindicated. Uh, and I actually feel a bit sad that... that, that, uh, that uh, the situation is turning out pretty much, you know, with some nuances, pretty much as as things uh, should be expected given the demographics. But looking at the demographics, I started realizing, I said, oh, this is how demography has been shaping already mm-hmm. New Brunswick's economy. The future is already here when it comes to the economy. In 2008, the first baby boomers started retiring, and that amputated our growth potential by about two-thirds right there. And that's exactly what happened. Our growth was about 2.3, 2.4 before uh, 2008, over a long run, yep. and now it's about 0.6, 0.7. So what the models predicted is actually occurred. So I called up a few friends in Ottawa who were working in similar models and people who work in banks and have similar models and they said, well, Richard, wake up and smell the coffee. This is standard stuff, you know, growth decomposition. And yeah, that's, that's your results. And why are you surprised? I said, well, I just, I'm struck by how fast this has happened and how it happened. But we, we don't realize that a gradual process such as demographic change can have sudden consequences. You know, same, same thing with climate change. You know, like things are linear for a while, just as when you go to the Grand Canyon from the South Rim, you're driving on flat land, elevated but flat land, and a forest of ponderosas, but don't, you know, drive 150 miles per hour because you'll have a Telma and Louise moment, you know? <laughs> so, so, so this was struck me as fascinating, and I started looking at our, our spending patterns, and they were coming back from the pre-2008 era, we were still spending profligately because it's hard to put the brakes on when it's only you think, well, it, things will come back. As they had between, say, the early 80s and, and 2008, yeah, the recession. exactly. But you, you, you say, no, we'll go back to that normal. And that's where I realized, no, that new normal is here to stay. Now, I did write a, a, a piece that was reproduced in Huddle recently yes, yes. That, that, that tried to argue 
to, to show that you know we have to be careful about thinking that the new the sunny days are back in New Brunswick. I predicted in 2015 when the exchange rate went down and oil prices went down as it did that this would be a powerful stimulant for the economy and that we would have a temporary improvement which would make balancing the book an easy task. Which you called, a, I believe, a sugar high. Well, it, was a sh it is a sugar high. Most people agree that it's a sugar high. We're not the only provinces that benefited from that. Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, PEI also yeah. benefited from that because they're Exports. not... Yeah, and they're not oil uh, producers. Right. Okay, so the provinces that got struck hard were uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and, and Newfoundland and Labrador because they're heavy oil producers and other commodities that, that whose prices went down. So. We are thinking these days that, you know, sunny days are back and things are going to be like they were forever and, uh, you know, those gloom and doom and gloom stories, you know, they're, they're fine for getting people to talk, but it's not the actual reality. Well, most economists would tell you that you shouldn't plan on the peak. You should right. plan on the basis of the average over the long run, and that average has not changed. Remember that the government, when it came to power in 2014, they came up with that strategic review exercise and they declared that New Brunswick had a structural deficit of half a billion dollars, 500 to 600 million dollars, and they said, we're going to find efficiencies here, which they creatively said that it represents half of their efforts and we're going to raise taxes, and then basta. Which, which they did. Which they did, but it's a basta, we're done, and uh, the deficit is lower. Uh, we, we haven't eliminated it completely, but the deficit is lower. Yeah, but that's a conjectural, cyclical deficit that's lower. But if they're right about the structural deficit, which is 500 to 600 million dollars, yes, they raised the HST with a credit for their lower income people, so that's about 180 or some odd million. We're still short 400 million. Right, right. <laughs> you know, if, if it is a structural deficit, I'm not implying that they were right to say that New Brunswick was in a 500 million, 600 million structural deficit. My view is that it's much higher than that if you want to keep on spending as you did before on healthcare, knowing that the first baby boomer is about to turn 75 in three years from now. Mm -hmm. And that expenditures on healthcare are much higher at 75, 80, and 85 than they are at six at 65. At 65, average expenditures per person are $6,000. At 80, they're $25,000. So, you know, in, in 10, 15 years from now, half of our baby boomers will be 75 and above. So, unless we find ways to do better with our money and raise more money through higher growth, the cliff is still intact and awaiting us, and we're still headed over that cliff, unless, and that's the purpose of the second book I wrote, unless yes. Ottawa bails us out. We don't like to talk about that. But that takes us to the question of what's a country for? And, you know, a lot, different countries will have different answers to that. In the United, United States, some people will say it's to make money. Right. In Canada, I tend to believe that most people will say it's about preserving human dignity. And the reason for that is this, when you ask Canadians what's their greatest symbol of national identity, they say healthcare. Well, what, I don't know a lot of countries where people define themselves primarily because of universal free healthcare. It's that, a commodity in most Western countries. Is that because of our, the proximity to our neighbor, uh, who, as we all know, more and more in the news, doesn't have the kind of well, uh, healthcare systems that we have? I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, but beyond that, I also think it's because Canadians, we are a very highly fragmented, regionalized country with, you know, if you fly, if you go through various provinces, you'll rarely see the Canadian fly flying alone. You'll see it with, you know, a, a Newfoundland flag here with an Acadian or New Brunswick flag. Nova Scotia, you see Nova Scotia flag. In Kingston, Ontario, you tend to see the Canadian flag alone sometimes, sure. you know. But we're a very regionalized country and we can't agree on much. 
including on how much wealth to share. But we agree that people should have universal free health care. But that's a provincial jurisdiction. Old age security, we, we figured it out a long time ago. We, we said we're going to amend the Constitution to make sure that it's a federal jurisdiction so that human dignity will be preserved. And now, in Atlantic Canada, we get twice as much money per capita as Alberta does, and rightly so, because we're older and faster aging. So we recognize that when it comes to, to, to dignity in terms of income support for the older individuals. Now, the, the, the challenge of the years ahead will be to recognize that dignity for uh, those uh, on the healthcare front, which is a provincial jurisdiction. Which is something we don't always think too much about. We think of our healthcare system, and as you point out in, in the book, we don't really have a healthcare system, it's more systems. Yeah. Certainly equalization and the Canada Health Transfers try to keep those uh, conditions reasonably on par, but yeah. uh, as you write, that's going to become increasingly difficult as, as we hit what you call the great dem demographic imbalance. Well, for two reasons. The first one, obviously, is that um, the uh, the equalization and the federal transfers, they're not designed to take into account differences in needs. No, the Constitution doesn't say that we'll make sure that you have all have equal amounts of money or that we, you compare to a national standards in order to provide comparable services. It says that you will have satisfactory or sufficient revenues to provide comparable uh, services. That's now, if your enough. needs are twice as big as, if, well, it's vague, but it's a critical nuance. If your needs are twice as big as your neighbors, you should be getting more money to provide similar services. Now, some provinces in Canada are almost twice as whole not twice as old, but have concentrations of seniors that are almost twice as much as others. And getting worse. And getting worse, accelerating. That's the great demographic imbalance. So what's the logical conclusion of that is that we're not, we risk not honoring the principle of the Constitution. There's a difference between equalization, the principle in the Constitution that says you should get enough to provide decently comparable services, and the actual program which says you'll get roughly the same amount of money the two very different concepts. And so far, we've been thinking about equalizing money rather than responding to differences in needs. But I think that until 2008, all of that made critical much sense because most baby boomers were actively employed in the workforce. Right. So you didn't have a high concentration of seniors. In fact, 50 years ago, as you know, we had fewer seniors uh, in Atlantic Canada than in the rest of the country. Uh, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. but now we have way more. Why? Because our baby boom generation was much more numerous and therefore because we have a bigger baby boom, we have more people reaching the age of 65 and we're not getting as many immigrants and migrants from other, uh, other provinces coming to the province. So people are moving to the ages of 65, 70 and above, but you're not getting as many babies and immigrants to fill behind them. Right. So we have these age pyramids that now look like the opposite of pyramids. <laughs> and we see that in, in real terms, if we go into our rural communities in New Brunswick, where, uh, with respect to having young families and, and, and young people, they're mostly hollowed out. Most yeah. uh, most rural communities now are filled with uh, folks who are yeah. retired, semi-retired, or about to retire. We did a tour on immigration. I wanted uh, to touch on that. Yeah, a couple of months ago. And uh, we had to look at regional data because we want to speak to communities about their situation. And the town of Dalhousie, and I don't want to quote it wrong, but the median age there was close to 60. Really? The median age in Alberta is about 37. Median age in Canada, in, in New Brunswick is about 45. So within New Brunswick itself, we have 
enormous discrepancies in uh, demographics. Here, where we are today in Moncton, it's around, median age is around 40s, lower than the Canadian median age, I believe. Really? Okay, and same probably in Fredericton. So, so, but that urban, rural, north, south, whatever divide you want to call it, you know what? We have one healthcare system, we have one education, well, well two education, dual education system, but right. we provide the same services across the province. So we recognize that equalization principle. Some communities have greater needs and therefore they will get more services. Why can't we recognize that as a country? Right. But in order to have a good conversation on that, you have to demonstrate that you use the resources to the best that you could, that you've done your own homework. Now, if you have the lowest student education ratio, student educator ratio in the country or among the lowest, and you say that uh, you have no plans to do better on that count and you're not gonna, you know, readjust your spending to reflect your demographics. Well, some people out west might feel a bit um, reluctant to send more money down. You know, it's, it's a conversation we're going to need to have and we need to set ourselves properly to have that conversation. Conversation or confrontation? Well, the Canadian language I've learned is we <laughs> call it a dialogue. In the U.S., you'll call that a, a major confrontation. Right. A face-off, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's more that's Canadian right. You mentioned the the tour that you had the the multi uh, the multi town and city tour uh, all around New Brunswick. I believe it was called the New Conversations. Was it primarily focused on uh, immigration and how that could uh, help soften the blow of some of our demographic uh, changes that are coming? Yeah, the New Brunswick Multicultural, Multicultural Council uh, is is an ardent promoter, of course, of you know uh, not immigration per se, but you know is obviously heavily involved in issues related to immigration and they saw the need for a conversation with various communities so that people understand that immigration is not just something you know that uh, we need to do better for a variety of reasons you know, benefits of diversity the benefits of inclusion and all of that but also that it's the driver of economic growth and sometimes people think that you know when you talk about immigration it, you know it's Fredericton, Moncton, St. John well, no, actually, baby boomers are retiring everywhere, and that's opening up positions everywhere. And when we did that tour, we deliberately, and the Multicultural Council was very wise to do so, went to various communities across the north, the south, and small communities and larger communities, you know, something that was representative of all of New Brunswick. And, and what's at stake in terms of immigration is that I call it deindustrialization in New Brunswick. Like, there's a bunch of the businesses, we call footloose businesses, that can came to New Brunswick because conditions were advantages and can leave New Brunswick if conditions are not advantages, such as they can't find labor, you know. So I was told that certain areas like Saint-Francois, Madawaska, or in that area, they have a poultry plant and on the floor, yeah, there's already 20% of people working on the, on the floor who are not uh, recent Canadians, are not long-term or older Canadians, Canadians from long day. Right, right. They're newcomers to Canada. So we're already seeing it quite, you know, Capelé, Temporary Foreign Worker Program, sometimes it's close to 600, 700 people there. In the potato know. belt as well, uh, up the River Valley. You're absolutely right. So in some communities, you're seeing that uh, they are faced with major labor crunches. And then we say, well, we have unemployment. How can you have unemployment and major labor shortages? Well, ask any business owner and they're going to tell you that they are facing acute labor shortages. And that it's normal at times that you, in seasonal industries, that you might have a higher level of employment and at the same time that you have a bunch of uh, jobs wanted 
uh, jobs uh, opening positions that are that are advertised it's yeah. normal and it's happening and we're seeing it all over the place and our success you know remember that the main reason why from 2008 onwards the economy has been declining is that our labor force is declining so despite the fact that the economy was doing better over the last three or four years we still lost more than 15,000 Canadian born New Brunswickers in the labor force during that time when During our economy time, was a little bit hotter. Really. Yeah, we, our actual loss was about 11,300 because we welcomed more than 3,000 immigrants. The only source of growth in the labor force, not growth, but the reason why the decline is slower than it would otherwise be mm -hmm. is immigration. So it's the only source of growth, if you want, but it's outweighed by, uh, by uh, Canadians, Canadian-born New Brunswickers leaving the workforce. It's counterintuitive because you would uh, you would sort of lead yourself to believe that uh, as as the price of oil dropped, you would see more uh, native New Brunswickers repatriate from from Alberta and Saskatchewan. Well, it, 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 it no doubt happened. It no doubt, some of that no doubt happened. But uh, we also have to remember that um, just to aging, aging alone, the fact that baby boomers are retiring, we're losing about thirty five hundred people annually. You know, so 3,500 times four is, is close to 15,000, you know. And uh, interprovincial migration is a hard one to pin down. Uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that are entering the equation, and, mm -hmm. and, and one of them is actually aging. As you get older, you don't move as much. Right. You have your friends, your network of friends, you're established in your community. Or and when you're 65, you get old age security, and it's a Canadian program. And right. why would you pay a high rent if you can stay in Canada, in, in New Brunswick, or come, you know? or come back to your repatriate yourself when you retire? Which is a good thing. I've heard a lot of people saying that you know, they, 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 we, we educate them, and then they leave, pay taxes elsewhere, and then they come back and use our, our, our health services. Mm -hmm. While they mostly come back with pensions, many of them sure. they come back with their income. They spend it locally, and when they're 65, 67, they don't need that much health uh, care and all, that much they quite, will later, that much later yes but they will have paid their taxes along the way sure. so they're a net benefit coming in and I'm not even including there the fact that equalization and the Canada social and health transfers are per capita and so the more people you have in your province so that money follows them the back. more money follows back in New Brunswick right. so it's all connected and it's about population growth in the end the reason why New Brunswick aged much faster than the rest of the country is because over the last 40 years or so, it's not 30 years or so, its population barely increased, or as that of Canada, more than doubled. It's, that's the reason. And our population does look to increase, if you uh, listen to Stats Canada, it doesn't look to increase much in the next uh, 20 years, but yet our, pop our share of seniors will, according to what I've seen, will be almost a third of, yeah. of our total population yeah. in New Brunswick. Yeah. One has to be careful about, I guess, not being too political uh, party-wise, you know, partisan. I know for certain before the, before the last election, uh, our former Premier, David Allward, did indeed read your, read your book Over the Cliff. Do you feel that some of the things you warned about, some of the policy prescriptions that you, you might have put forward were, were at least taken into consideration, or, or was uh, the baby with the bathwater type of scenario fall? Oh, it's very hard to answer, but you'll remember that uh, Right after the election, you know, the government, the, the, the Galant government, they came forward with 
what was bold back then, the strategic program review exercise, when they said everything is on the table, you know, be afraid, be very afraid, everything is on the table except constitutional obligations and federal jointly financed programs. So they were saying, you know, we need to act and everything is on the table. And then the economy started to improve and the government realized that maybe the population doesn't want that much bold change at this point. So the government got out, essentially, you know, contradicted his minister and said, you know, we're protecting healthcare and education just when Victor Boudreau, two hours before, was saying everything is on the table. So obviously they realized after a while that they said, well, maybe, maybe we don't need this that much. And it just coincided with the fact that 2015 was the year when we had one of the biggest prices uh, drops in oil prices in history, mm -hmm. which was a major sugar high, and our economy went from almost declining to 2.3% growth in one year. So the sugar so, high took away the, the, the impetus to... I, I can't say that. I don't know. But sure. I can tell you that the imperative uh, was not as big because once you raised the HST, which was you know was still half the equation, and you had that sugar high, your deficit was naturally going down. And maybe they said, well, maybe what we need to do is to all we need to do is to say that look, the deficit is going down, obviously, so therefore we're doing a better job. And you know what politicians do? You know they like to take credit for the fun ones. So, <laughs> so they took credit for that fun one. Uh, who's to blame here? I don't care about that, honestly. But my view is that uh, you can't act meaningfully, politically speaking, unless your citizens are backing you up. Unless they're saying, we want that. Okay? And when most citizens, if they see, well, the economy is doing better, they're not all you know, certified economists. They look at that and say, well, things appear to be doing better. The deficit is going down. Maybe all those cries of doom and gloom were all inflated and exaggerated, and you know they're telling us not to worry. So, you know, progress. We're doing better, and uh, the liberals federally were elected too. So you know we have a few powerful politicians, and some money came in on construction, and we said you know maybe better days are coming. Canadian economy is doing great these days. I mean it's the lowest unemployment rate in 40 years. So. Things are good, cyclically speaking. We're at the tail end of the business cycle, but people don't no, you, people don't talk on the streets and saying, well, we're at the tail end of the business cycle right now, so we should slow down a bit and start thinking about saving money and, and, and prepare for the next one. We're just like, yeah, I think times are good. You know, we don't talk about that. Right. And politicians know that. Right. So, And for the first time, we've been you know, in the bad economic, poor days economically for a long while. So we said, well, growth is back, you know, Let's let's rejoice a bit, and room, I understand room, that. Room to breathe. Yeah, we have room to breathe. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's too bad that it's a sugar high, and that economists know that it's a sugar high. But politicians are not going to tell you, well, guys, we just went through this sugar high. We maybe Louis Robichaud would have done it. Maybe Frank McKenna would have done it. In the and maybe Chrétien in the 1990s, I just came back from reading some of the budget documents. They had sections on preparing for an aging uh, society. Frank McKenna published papers and discussion papers on an aging society and what needs to be done. We were talking about that 20 years ago. We were saying the future is coming. The future has been here for a while now. We haven't done anything. Because, you know, there's the four-year electoral cycle and, and, and I've said it somewhere that dealing with mismatches in revenues and spending is probably one of the great peacetime challenges of democracies. 
because people don't understand why they should be spent saving for 10 years down the road when they have needs right now. Right. Some societies do that well. Norway does that well when it's oil wealth all banked in the sovereign wealth fund and trillions in the bank. You know, they're saying, well, one day oil will be gone, so let's prepare for the future. But in Canada, we don't have the same experience. Alberta, when, when, when the oil price went down in 2014, they had to come up with a $10 billion deficit. They didn't think about creating a provincial sales tax. Right. They didn't even discuss that. You know, They said, well, just go into debt, hoping that one day we'll get another bumper sticker that says, now that oil is back, we won't screw it up this time. Because they had that after the first oil, after the oil crisis in the 1970s, during the the NEP National Energy Program of Pierre Trudeau, mm -hmm. they had one that says that the eastern bastard freeze in the freeze dark. In the dark. Right. And then when the oil crisis came, they said, "Please, Lord, send us another boom. We promise we won't piss it away next time." So maybe the next bumper sticker in Alberta will say, "Please, Lord, send another boom. We promise we won't piss it away next time." <laughs> Day. 
listening to the Why to Stay podcast with your host, Aaron Perry. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. You mentioned in the tale of two countries that this isn't a, and you just alluded to it a moment ago, this isn't something that has just snuck up on us in the last 15 years. This, this is a, a slow motion emergency, kind of 60 years in the making or more. You're since right. the end of the last, uh, yeah. the last war. Uh, so, have we, we? We've obviously missed a great deal of opportunity. It's not something that we're just finding out about now. Uh, and some of the prescriptions that you mentioned as well, uh, two of the biggest uh, line items in the, in the budget, you know, education and healthcare. Uh, during that program review, have we missed in the last ten years some opportunities to? You, you point out several opportunities, I guess, for. Uh, savings or rationalization of some kind in those two line items. Um, can you see a government being elected, whatever strike, uh, being willing to politically have the courage to take on those those uh, responsibilities, I guess, or those choices? Yeah, I can see that. I, I can see that with uh, new Frank McKenna. I can see that with uh, with. Uh, I don't know if we had another Louis Robichaud, but it's, um, it's, it's, it requires a, a tremendous amount of leadership, and uh, New Brunswick is a very hard province to govern. But so far, and that's what institutions, when facing decline, uh, do normally, the, the general pattern is to deal with it through attrition. They're just not going to replace uh, vacant positions, and we did that. I mean, it's true that in the school system, Number of teachers, yeah, but also school system and uh, hospitals. Um, some positions were not necessarily uh, filled immediately, and you know, so they dealt with some of that. And you, if you look at the, the figures, uh, there's certainly has not been growth, whereas the needs have been growing. There's not have been that much growth when the needs were growing. So yes, we we've managed to 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 put some patches here and there, but we're only at the front end of this great demographic trans challenge and, and we're already pretty much exhausted from that attrition. So in the healthcare system, and that's been my point all along, we need to generate some flexibility to have the leeway to adjust. Some big structural changes, I would assume you're talking about. Yeah, and I don't know anymore if we can do it without further help from Ottawa. I, I think we've reached a point where uh, if we are to maintain free universal health care as we know it, that at some point Ottawa is going to have to step in. But whether they will do so depends on, to me, depends on the extent to which we've taken the problem seriously. Because Ottawa is not some abstract entity located on the Ottawa River in, this, in the sense that I hear it. It's Canadians. It's Canadians voting for a federal party that will uh, make this a priority. And in the last election, the only party that actually said that uh, health transfers, in that case, should reflect demographic needs, demographic realities, was the only party that stood no chance of being elected. It was the Greens. The other ones read the news. They know what's going on. But they felt that it wasn't politically profitable for them to, to... There was a late conversion of Mulcair towards the end. But that coincided with the fact that he was no longer thinking about that he could form government. Right. So, so the, even though the, the health transfers are doled out on a per capita basis and our needs are uh, 
not on a per capita basis based on our demographics, the votes are still on a per capita basis, one person, one vote. That's so, right. Uh, we're in a we're in bad shape as far as spending goes for the, the great demographic uh, uh, interference uh, that you mentioned on not only uh, spending and keeping our responsibilities that we constitutionally hold, but also in in power in Ottawa, uh, political power. Because you're right. You know, we're, we're There's a great political imbalance there. Right. And uh, you know, in 2015, Harper. Uh, the upper government, but they had to do it. You know, uh, uh, modified the composition of the House of Commons to reflect population growth. There were 30 seats that were added to the House of Commons. 27 of them west of the Ottawa River, three in Quebec, zero in Atlantic Canada. So in Atlantic Canada, we have 32 federal seats. We added one Atlantic Canada to the electoral map, the House of Commons, and not a single of those seats were in Atlantic Canada. So our demographic weight is obviously going down and therefore political weight is going down and will continue to it will continue to decline meaning that in a sense it makes us it makes it cheaper to bail us out because we're we're not that numerous but on the other hand it makes it politically harder particularly if a lot of people out west feel that we are taking advantage of uh, the transfers but not uh, in some cases not willing to uh, build the nation, and thinking here about, you know, for instance, Quebec's position on uh, the uh, pipelines, right. you know, whether they're right or wrong, it's a different issue, but Quebec, you know, will take the equalization dollars, but they won't take the pipeline. There's no one right or wrong there, but there's uh, Westerners who are starting to feel that they are not being treated respectfully here. You know? It's a hard pill to swallow for them. It's a hard pill to swallow. And these guys are growing in demographic weight, and so is Ontario. And by the way, everyone is feeling the effects of the uh, population aging. So that means there's going to be more needs everywhere. It's just that we have, it's just at a time when everyone is feeling the pinch of demographics that we're going to turn to them to ask for even more. So it's not an easy conversation to have. As time goes on, it seems like we're sort of running out of political solutions, uh, at least ones that are going to have a great impact to sort of soften the blow of the demog uh, demographic imbalance. Uh, what, what's our individual responsibility as far as uh, coming to terms with, with what needs to be done? Just to show you, not show, but to, to give you a, a sign that I'm not that much of a pessimist. You've convinced me. <laughs> I will tell you that I actually believe that we will find a solution to this. I actually believe that down the road, Canadians will decide that everyone, regardless of where they live, should be treated with dignity and receive fairly comparable services. I'm not. A, I'm not concerned about whether older individuals in older New Brunswickers will get proper care. I think they will. I think we will find solutions. Ottawa cares about that. Canadians care about that. What Canadians don't care about, I believe, or care less about, is how high your provincial taxes are going to be and how many people will stay in New Brunswick, pay their taxes in New Brunswick, and support the New Brunswick government. Maybe these folks, those who vote with their feet to get better jobs, at lower taxes and better social programs like daycare and everything else. Maybe some will vote with their feet. So it's not inconsistent to say that Ottawa will continue to make sure that Canadians are treated with dignity and that New Brunswick shrinks in population and vitality, economically speaking. Right. See what I mean? Yes. 
But I care, and you care, I'm sure, because you, you probably have kids here in New Brunswick. That's right. uh, you care about whether they get a chance to stay and that their tax burden is not too high. So human dignity will be preserved. But at what cost for New Brunswickers? Because don't expect Ottawa to come running at the first sign of fiscal distress here. They're going to say, well, you you dug your, your own hole here. You've been at 10 consecutive deficits, even 11, and you've doubled the debt, and you never took any real any of this really seriously. And now you're in trouble? Well, we'll wait a little while, and we'll see what you come up with in terms of transformative solutions. So there's going to be some pain that will be felt. You know, uh, and, and what and soon? Yeah, well, I don't know about soon, maybe five to seven years, you know, that... You know, we had a sugar high, and, and, and we can still borrow more. Credit rating agencies are not concerned about how much, uh, about uh, how much, I think credit rating agencies are, think that New Brunswick can borrow more, because in the end, they don't care about how many schools or hospitals need to be closed down for, uh, they care about whether the debt will be repaid, whether creditors will be paid back. That's all they care about. So the fact that some rating agencies are relatively sanguine and, you know, Standard & Poor's recently came out and said, stable outlook in New Brunswick, no downgrade, we shouldn't use that as a sign of success. It's simply that these guys are not worried at this point that uh, you're not going to pay back your debt. The Auditor General certainly is. Well, rightly so, because the Auditor General should be concerned more about the sustainability of public finances and services. Now, sustainability is defined on the basis of the services you wish to provide. If you decide tomorrow that healthcare is privatized, then New Brunswick's public finances are completely sustainable. And that's of no consequence to the folks who are buying our, our debt. Exactly. In, in bonds, right? So, so, so we have to be careful about you know thinking that just because someone, just because you go to the bank and the bank says you can hi get a higher mortgage, doesn't mean that the bank cares about your comfort and how many trip vacations you take every year. You know, they just want to send you more money. Now, they care about whether you can pay back, okay? So, which is why there'll be a limit to your mortgage. But it's not always wise to say, yeah, I'll, I'll take the most you can give me. You know, yeah. because it will have consequences if for some reason you have greater needs down the road, mm -hmm. someone in your family falls sick, you know, things happen, you know. Uh, for a credit rating agency, it doesn't matter. Same thing with the bank, you know. They just assess you on the basis of your ability to pay, not on the sacrifices you make to pay. What should the average person in New Brunswick be, be trying to consider uh, as far as, I, I guess, pulling pulling our weight or doing our part? We expect our politicians to, uh, so what, what can we do individually? Uh, stop thinking about the public purse as a lake which you can just say, well, you know, we're responsible collectively for the health of the lake, but what what's the difference do I make individually? You know, so you can pollute a bit and it doesn't matter. We should start thinking about what's the core purpose of government. Is the purpose of government to maintain good paying public jobs in your community or is it to provide good services for people based on public policy, sound public policy reasons? In a lot of communities, the moment you're talking about changes that involve potentially positions that will not be renewed or changes, there's a complete 
uh, opposition to those things immediately. Think about the CN. When the CN was a public corporation, it couldn't shut down easily uh, yards in uh, Moncton, Here in Moncton right. because there would be a public outcry. Right. But when CN is privatized, they shed a lot of things because we said they said we don't need that many people to do the job appropriately. But in the private sector, it goes without saying that it's acceptable. Right. But in the public sector, no, 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 you got to keep that bloated. So as citizens, we have to understand, give leeways to managers to manage based on what we believe is a good quality service. I'm not talking privatization here necessarily. I'm talking about we have to provide people with the right amount of flexibility to transform services in a way that will best meet our needs and stop saying we just say no to any change. So we have to change our mindset on a, on a personal basis, I guess, if, if I hear what you're saying. Let's face it, uh, after, the, after the, the end of the last war, we've built up quite a social safety net. And we, we have a lot of services we sort of take for granted and, and really expect implicitly. There's the uh, comparison to you know the big container ship out at sea it can take you know seven miles to turn around. This isn't something we're going to. This kind of cultural or mindset shift isn't something we're going to see uh, happen tomorrow. Do we do we have the kind of time that's going to require to, to have that that kind of uh, uh, mind shift? I guess it's a hard question to answer. Sure, I've essentially already said in the tale of two countries that I believe that we're sufficiently advanced that healthcare, public, universal, as we know it, will no longer be with us without further help from Ottawa. So if you ask me, do we have time, I'm saying it's already up. But uh, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing our best, as I said. Why is it that I have to write up, or me or anybody else, stuff about New Brunswick's economic sugar high? When this is seen, why is it not our politicians saying, telling the population that this is temporary mm -hmm. and that no, we're not in better days forever and that we have to remember that the days ahead are going to be probably tougher than they are right now and we need to prepare for it. I believe that if Frank McKenna would have spoken that way and people would have, would have listened to him, would have listened to him because they trust that what he's saying there is not only good for electorally speaking, it's good because it's good for the province. So I think that we shouldn't let our leaders off the hook that easily either. That they're the ones who should be telling your Brunswickers, yeah, yeah, we got a sugar high, don't use that expression, we're allowed to use that expression, but we, we have benefited from uh, uh, tailwinds that have improved our situation, but we got to seize the moment to do even better so that we generate the flexibility necessary to make sure that in the future that the services that you cherish, cherish very much. You know, it's us and the political class, and we have to do that tango if you want. But we, we, it feels like over the last three years, everyone more or less abdicated. Yeah, it'll take a lot of political courage, won't it, to, for someone to step up and, and, and make those pronouncements, I guess. Yeah, is it courage or vision to know that uh, by not acting, you may be remembered in 10 or 15 years from now as a government that essentially nah, made the situation much worse. You know what I mean? So if you not. know that and you still do not act, okay, it's good for political short-term gain, but I mean, in the end, isn't it about, you know, making sure that you have good legacy you know so anyone who's who knows this should should know that they're acting carelessly right i 
can't put myself in, uh, in a political leader's shoes, but I think it would have to be difficult when you look back. We have a long history uh, post-war of having governments that are in power for you know, several mandates in a row, and, and the last few have been single-term single uh, premiers. So I can't, I can't imagine that that doesn't factor into the equation when, when they're uh, making decisions on public finances and, and social services. I don't know the, about that, but I can tell you that New Brunswickers, uh, just like any other citizens in my view, they look at the situation and they look at the alternatives. They always make a calculus based on who's out there. And uh, I can tell you that if Frank McKenna had been out there, he'd been, he would have won these elections, right. in my view, right. the way I see it. I don't think the New Brunswickers don't understand the situation at all. It just they feel that someone, the politicians need to level with them and, and, and tell us, okay, tell us the situation as, as it is. Don't scare the hell out of us. Don't tell us that everything's on the table. Was social assistance on the table? Was you know eliminating university funding on the table? You know, I hope that asking the question is answering it. You know, but but not scare people unduly and unnecessarily. But at the same time, don't pretend that the situation is not what it is, because people will feel that. But I'm not a politician, and I may be entirely wrong there. You know, they have, they do their jobs. They they have a reading of the population, and I suspect that when you hear them speak the way they're speaking right now, it's because they feel that's the best way to win votes. I understand that, but politicians, some politicians, are concerned about their legacy, and they say, "Well, I have to find a way to articulate this in a way that is politically palatable, while at the same time doing the right thing." But I, maybe it's not doable. I I don't pretend to have that political acumen. No, and, and I don't I don't mean to put you on the spot in that regard. You, you mentioned that uh, a leader would need to bring that information or, or kind of show a vision to, uh, to kind of point the way forward but not not scare the hell out of us. Uh, just made me think when you said that. When I, I, I read your book, Tale of Two Countries, twice and after the first time, I I don't think I got a good night's sleep for about a week. <laughs> I, you shouldn't read it before going to bed. My, my well, this is a, a time factor, right? Uh, my my wife asked me, "You didn't you read that book?" Yeah, I have to read it again. Well, what what is it? And I said, "Well, it's about the most terrifying piece of uh, nonfiction that I." But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Less, there's less, a, there's less. a guy who once called me the Stephen King of, <laughs> of the economy. <laughs> well, as long as you think that this is fiction, fiction. I no, guess. no. But uh, <laughs> of course, less so the second time. And uh, you know, you you put things in more perspective here too. To, it's it's encouraging to know that, that you're not a you're not a pessimist and, and you're not a cynic. You 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 uh, you know you really do think that there is there is a time and things that we can do and and clearly you believe in the, in our in our mentality and our culture that can kind of preserve human dignity, as you said. Well, you know, you you'd ask me in preparing for this this discussion. You you said that you wanted to talk a bit about. Uh, who I was as a person, and we didn't do that very much, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that, I'm a private man mostly, but I come from a small place, we all come from small towns, for a lot of us at least in New Brunswick, but I come from a small place where we saw the role that the government can play, at least I come from a generation that can see that, that was still, or at least was told of stories by their parents, and uh, in the 1950s, 
public schools, well, at least in the first, the outset, did not exist. Uh, you didn't have public health care. You didn't, and, and growing up, you saw the role that the government could have in a society, could, could the positive contribution of making sure that you not only are treated with dignity, but also that you have the tools to develop yourself in your community. And when a government fails to provide these essential services properly, it's always the poor and the vulnerable who suffer the most, always. And these people don't always have the same voice, speak with the same voice as the more powerful elements in our society who can leave if they want at, at some point. They say very often there's nothing that as nervous as a million dollars. Well, nowadays it maybe needs to be updated to 10 million, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, money moves fast. But folks in communities who have fewer means and who are more vulnerable, they're the ones who are more likely to stay and suffer the most if the government fails to meet its obligations. So, I wrote these two books thinking about my small community and thinking about how much of a positive and profound positive contribution government has made to that community. Now, a lot of people think about you know welfare and people being dependent. It's not about that. I'm, I'm talking about the school system, the healthcare system, the, the various things that maintain human dignity but allow us to flourish as individuals and as communities. And and that's that very fabric there that if if we hit a rough, a very rough patch, these are the things that you know, and these are the folks that may suffer the most. And and to me, it's obvious, but we tend to forget it at times. You know, we we tend to think that, oh well, you know, if it doesn't work out, we'll move. Not everyone moves. Not everyone can leave. Not everyone not wants to. Everyone. It's not an option for everyone. And we have to remember that. That's what it's about in the end. You know, people think about fiscal austerity and you know, cutbacks and they have the ideology of the 1980s and 70s of the left and the right and there's those who think that government should be spending and spending it all profitably and there are others who think the government could get out of the way and become a night watchman. It's, it's not about that. Governments take care of us now from cradle to the grave. They support us from cradle to the grave. Remove their effective contribution and you remove a key pillar of individual and community development. It's the reality of most states around the world, Western states right. around the world. You've read the books, mm -hmm. so you know, you know that's the intention behind. I, is, that again, what, is that what drove you to, yeah. to feel the need to, to do it now? Well, two things. The first one was uh, when I was a responsible for a VP of administration at the University of Moncton, the demographics really caught my interest, and I'm someone when I when I on something I just want to understand it understand it all I may not be a demographer but I felt I'll dig as deep as I need to because this is important this matters but the other element was that it matters because it's about the future of our communities future of New Brunswickers Maritimers and Atlantic Canadians generally so that's where I live and obviously I'm concerned but you know, you never write that stuff to scare the hell out of people. You you do that because you feel, well, I'm concerned and I ho I'm hopeful that someone will tell me what I'm missing in my analysis so that this story is not true. But so far, 
other than name calling and people saying that I don't believe in what he says, as a reader, you have an obligation when you say you don't believe someone, you have an obligation to deconstruct what he said and explain where he went wrong. Why is his conclusions are wrong? Find the material facts that will allow you to say, Saya, I appreciate your effort, but you're wrong. Have you received a lot of backlash from the message that is? Uh, I received the I received a lot of people saying that he's ideological and going back to uh, Thatcher and Reagan and, and and it's just austerity never works and all of that. But a lot of it, that kind of stuff to me is name calling. What I want to hear is your projections on uh, demographics are wrong for the following reasons. Sure. And and I could personally discuss some of my assumptions and over time in the tale of two countries there were some stuff in over the cliff that I've changed because I realized right. well it's not exactly that but nothing material that changes the overall picture one of the re the things that I don't discuss as much in the tale of two countries or over the cliff as I should perhaps is the natural role of immigration as jobs become available, more immigrants will come to New Brunswick, and maybe that will help us to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So there are things that automatic stabilizers, as you have more people age 65 and above, you get more uh, old age security, more guaranteed income supplement. But in the tail two countries, I look at that, and it's it's 0 0.1, 0.2 percentage points. It's not, it's 10% of the way maybe, you know? So there's some stuff that over time I'm realizing, I say, well, Maybe this is wrong, and this, is, but uh, and and a lot of people will tell me that you know what? Maybe healthcare will just figure out ways to become more sustainable and more innovative over time. Maybe technology will change everything. But so far, all technology has done is raise costs. But maybe in the future, we'll find a way to leverage technology to lower costs. But it, we're told we're on a cusp of a revolution where robots will take care of older people. We'll have self-diagnosis tools or sophisticated AI that will dramatically lower the costs of diagnosis and the way we do business. Maybe. But we've been on the cusp for a long while and we shouldn't bank on it. If that happens, then take a sigh of relief, take a breather. But in the interim, you should plan on the best available information that you have and say, well, in that context, maybe I should be prudent. And if it so happens that uh, positive developments make it that we things would turn out to be different than what you had planned, then you say, great, now let's take that and use it beneficially. But it's never prudent to double your debt, have 11 consecutive deficits, when you still are looking for an answer. What, maybe in 2007 we should have said, well, automation and AI will take care of our healthcare needs. No one said that in 2007. Now we're talking along those terms in 2017. And I'm saying, maybe, maybe not. But here's another reason to be optimistic. This, I call it a generational hump. After, it's sad to talk along those terms because you know, it brings us to the inevitability of passing away. But once that large, exceptionally large generation is gone, we go back to have an age pyramid that is a bit, resembles a bit more a pyramid. So we're back to a sense of normalcy. Is it a lower uh, normalcy in the sense of fewer people? Maybe, uh, you know, probably, but you're back to a more stable age pyramid. So had we not doubled our debt, had we not run 11 consecutive deficits, maybe we would be in a position now to run bigger deficits and 
put it on the credit card for 15 years. Right. Okay? But you can't put it on the credit card for 25, 30 years. That's my view, at least. You know, so had we done what we needed to be done 10 or 15 years ago, we wouldn't be in that situation, and we'd be able to debt finance much of our future pressures. Now, Ottawa can do it. Canada is not aging as fast, and it, the aging of a population alone will not bankrupt healthcare. So Ottawa, federally speaking, our demographic situation is better, and we can handle it if we find ways to transfer monies. But in New Brunswick, unfortunately, there was an opportunity to keep our indebtedness relatively low to, in order to deal with the coming disruption, but we didn't do it. We're not alone, but we're among the worst sinners. Right. Nova Scotia, PEI, even Quebec have been uh, managing their situation better and they don't have a deficit this year. They don't have a projected deficit. And it was within the reach of New Brunswick to not have a deficit this year. And then they're going to say, well, it's because we need a balanced approach. What is a balanced approach in fiscal planning terms if it's not achieving a balanced, balanced book? Because if it's not a balanced budget, then balance means everything and nothing. It's in the eye of the beholder. Oh, well, for us, balance is a billion dollars deficit. Why? Because it's very important that we spend more to stimulate the economy. Or for us, balance is a billion dollars less because uh, we want to make sure that we can help baby boomers in uh, 10 years from now. It's it, The word balance can only mean something when you're talking about fiscal fiscal situation if it relates to the books. Right. So you're back to a more uh, more of an emotional argument than a than a fact-based one or a data-based one. That's right. One. Yeah. Balance can excuse anything. Every time that uh, you want to justify inaction or justify your actions, you say, "Well, we did it in a balanced way." So, okay, well, we'll go. We'll 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 add another three hundred million dollars to the debt. But we'll do so in a balanced way. That's the other thing about our fiscal situation. There's another five billion dollars to the debt that's that that the government that credit rating agencies consider unsustainable. They consider it not self-supporting debt. So you have fourteen billion dollars and more in provincial debt, five billion dollars from NB Power. It's four billion cash and change plus a billion dollar in decommissioning liabilities plus about a billion dollars for the New Brunswick uh, Municipal Corporation. And we said that we're going to proceed with MacTacoac, which is referred to $3.6 billion. Right. So our tax-supported debt is around $20 billion right. plus the MacTacoac liability, because MacTacoac will only allow you to maintain the status quo. So it, you can't expect much more revenue from MacTacoac than what you would have otherwise, because you're just rebuilding to maintain the existing infrastructure right. beyond 2030. Just as you would a highway. Yeah, and, and that, by the way, credit rating agencies look at that. They look at the whole tax support of debt, and they concluded that MB Power's debt and the New Brunswick Municipal Corporation is not self-supporting, and therefore is a liability on the taxpayer side. Nova Scotia privatized uh, the, the uh, Nova Scotia Power, so it's no longer on their books, you know. We had the opportunity to do so, but it certainly became politically untenable argue that it lost in an election. It's something that may have to be revisited. Well, that's that's an interesting point about what you mentioned earlier on about, you know, uh, one-term governments. The electorate uh, is not always, the dissatisfaction was not always fiscal. You know, it didn't relate sure. to fiscal troubles, not all the time, you know. 
and that thing it was more you know debate was about NB power before that it was auto insurance rates and you know it's there's always a variety of reasons why a government is not re-elected but it's in the case of the fiscal situation I'm not I'm not clear about the role it played in the last election it's just that the times have been hard for the previous four years the economy had declined and Bill Clinton said it before is the economy stupid right so the economy had declined by about 0.5 percent annually so obviously that doesn't help your re-election prospects so I'm not sure again this is always the fiscal situation is an important concern but I'm not sure that's what elects you or defeats you electorally right Richard I want to be uh, I want to be uh, conscious of your time and I, yep. I do appreciate it but I, just a couple more things you you mentioned about the new conversation story that you had uh, with respect to immigration in New Brunswick so you talked about some of the things that that uh, some of the messages that you as a tour took out to the small communities and large ones uh, what did you what did you hear back what was some of the feedback that you got from from some of the communities and, and did it differ from urban centers to rural uh, north-south? Some of the feedback, some of the major takeaways is that the situation differs from community to community, but within all communities, they're cognizant of the challenge and they understand that if their future depends on their ability to attract newcomers. And that was a reassuring takeaway. It's, it's something that, you know, it's being felt throughout the province. It's here, it's there, and it's a, it's a real pressure. Employers around the province are feeling it, and they're devising strategies, and they're learning by doing. You know, like they, they're changing their strategies over time. Yeah. Municipal, uh, municipal officials are often the ones with the most flexibility and really the most uh, power on the ground, so they say. But, uh, one more question. You've... you've uh, published that book uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, you, you're active in uh, the New Conversations tour. You, you're still writing uh, articles. What's next for you? Well, I'm, uh, I'm in the university world uh, these days, and uh, but I don't have a PhD. And I'm in the process of doing that, uh, more seriously starting in uh, September uh, on a nearly full-time basis, well, full-time as a student. And I'll continue to do some work here and there uh, in terms of uh, if I, I find uh, uh, issues that really speak to me, I'll still collaborate actively. But uh, I think I found my niche in, in the academic world, and now I uh, need to go get my street creds, <laughs> which is what I'm doing. Very good. Great. Because nowadays the PhD is the, uh, is the uh, currency for, uh, for being called an academic. So when people called me professor before or doctor, I always, you know, I had to correct them and say, well, <laughs> actually, uh, you may think I'm a professor, but I'm not. So <laughs> hoping to save your breath in the future. <laughs> yeah, call me Richard. <laughs> well, Richard, on that note, I want to thank you very much for uh, appearing on the Y2 State podcast. Well, thank you very much. Great, thank you. So that concludes my conversation with economist and author Richard Sayon. I apologize for the length of the podcast. It ran way longer than I had anticipated when I first started editing, but when I got right down to it, there was uh, so much good stuff there that Richard was talking about that I couldn't bring myself to edit much of it out. At any rate, thanks for listening, and again, please check out the show notes for the contact information for Richard, some of his writings, and also for The Art of the Possible. Thanks again, and until next time, stay well, and keep finding reasons why to stay. Finally found the good life Never gonna put it 
down. 